The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. A wedding, where at the reception, the DJ apparently believes that the whole thing is just one great big event designed to show how cool of a DJ he can be been to one like that. The guests are all there at the reception, kind of eating hors d'oeuvres and chit-chatting with people they don't know as they await the arrival of the wedding party. And then they show up, and then suddenly the basketball announcer turned wedding MC takes over. Way too much bass. And way too much drawing out of the names as he calls the wedding party in. And the fireworks... I didn't know you could do that inside, but man, that was way over the top. And as the evening goes on, event after event happens, the, the first dance, the cutting of the cake, and it seems that everything reminds this guy of something in his own life, and then he proceeds to tell us about it. Looks at the first dance, and he says, ah, oh, that's so sweet. You know, my girlfriend and I really like that sort of thing, too. And that reminds me of a story. And then he starts to tell it. And everybody is thinking, I wish somebody would unplug this guy's microphone. He doesn't seem to grasp the concept here. This moment belongs to somebody and it is not him. He's supposed to just fade into the background and let them take center stage. I've been to a couple weddings that are kind of like that. Not that bad, of course. Thankfully, most weddings aren't like that. But here in this world, there is one wedding. One great significant wedding that is constantly, routinely plagued with this sort of problem. Servants and helpers and assistants and attendants who consistently strive to elbow their way onto center stage and to push out of the middle those who rightly belong there. To move the main event off to the side and the main person of the main event off to the side. That happens the Apostle John wants to talk to us about that this morning in John chapter 3. We're going to finish chapter 3 this morning. And we're still in that section that I've been talking about for a number of weeks now, the section of the new and better. It's a phrase that I've kind of put on this. John the writer, for a number of weeks, we're drawing to the end of this part, but for a number of weeks now he's been holding up Christ for us like a, like a jewel and displaying a different aspect to him, of, us, of him to us all tied to something that's previously existed in Judaism or in the Old Testament. And he's showing how all of that actually in the Old Testament was pointing forward to something, to someone, and that someone has now come and fulfilled it in a new and better way. He's been doing that for a number of weeks now. And this morning he's going to show us the supreme bridegroom. I use supreme because new and better doesn't exactly fit. The same idea of the Old Testament pointing forward towards something, but there isn't actually an old and lesser bridegroom. There are a number of bridegrooms, every groom in some ways pointing towards the great bridegroom, but there's not one single thing like there was one single temple. I've used the word supreme. But the same basic idea. The Old Testament pointing towards something, a time in the future when God himself would come and wed his people. As a glorious groom, that time was always coming, and now we see it has come. It is here. The groom has arrived. And that means some things for us. So we're going to talk about this morning. We begin by reading the passage, reading John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, He's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. 
You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The passage begins with Jesus and his disciples leaving Jerusalem. They'd come to the city for Passover back in chapter 2 and seemed to have stayed there for a little while. The details are all not quite all traced out here, but we do know this is still early in Jesus' ministry because John the Baptist has not yet been put in prison. We see that in verse 24. So Jesus and his disciples, they leave the city and they go out of it, still in Judea. So they're still in the general area of Jerusalem and they begin to baptize. Now in chapter 4, verse 2, we get a little clarification on this. Jesus himself personally is not dunking people in the water. His disciples are doing that. Remember, many of them were previously disciples of John the Baptist. And so they'd likely carried over that practice from John to Jesus. And now as followers of him, they're baptizing people in repentance in the name of Jesus. Or something like that's going on. That's what's happening around Jerusalem. And a little further to the north, John the Baptist is also still carrying on his ministry. So they're both operating at the same time, but they're not quite operating in the same way. One's on the increase and one is on the decrease. Shifting to John, while he's there baptizing, the text says that a Jew, we don't know who, remember they're all Jewish people, so it's just saying some guy, perhaps some person of importance, comes to John's disciples in the north there and begins to talk with them. See, what they were doing, what they were doing, the baptisms there, the the Jews had a mental framework, sort of, for this kind of thing that John's doing. They understood purification. We've talked about this before. The Old Testament, in many different ways, many different places, talks about the need to ritually cleanse oneself, to, to to, to remove impurities, to wash away sin, to do that constantly. And so purification they understood. John's kind of like that, John's baptism, but not quite. They also kind of had some mental categories for baptisms of a sort. There was a a type of a baptism for a Gentile convert to Judaism. There were baptisms of various kinds for different sects, little subgroups in Judaism who did different things called baptisms. But none of them were quite like what John did. Not the purification washings, not the baptisms. And so what he was doing and what Jesus was doing also caused some controversy and some questions and some dispute. And so this guy comes and he's debating with the disciples about what are you guys doing and how does that relate to what you're supposed to be doing according to what we believe. And somewhere in the process, John's disciples begin to reflect on more than just their ministry in relation to Judaism, but also they begin to reflect on their ministry in relation to Jesus' ministry. Begin to wonder about that. The word on the street was that large crowds, very large crowds, larger than those that were coming to them, were now beginning to go to and follow Jesus. And we saw in chapter 2, he was displaying a lot of power, and that kind of power draws a crowd. People were following after him. So they go to John the Baptist, their teacher, and they ask him in frustration, what's the deal? Rabbi, they say. Rabbi, that one you pointed to back in chapter 1, Incidentally, the one that we have not ourselves begun to follow. We'll leave that aside for a moment. The one that you pointed to and said people should follow, well, a lot of people are following him. I mean, a lot of people. They're shifting their allegiances from us over to him. His crowds are growing, and look at us. We're kind of fading away. Our significance, our impact, it's declining. You can hear their their jealousy here. They're even exaggerating. All are going over to him. What's the deal? Why is that? 
And so John responds to them in verse 27 with a proverbial saying. This is a, a truism, something that is obviously on the face of it clearly true. Given their worldview of being committed Jews, saw God as in charge of all the world and sovereign over everything, there's nothing that should have been more obvious than what John says. But he tells them because they seem to have forgotten it. He says, no one, not me, not you guys, not anybody can receive, can live in, can enjoy, can experience anything except what God gives to him. We live in a God-designed, God-run, God-overseen world, guys. And nothing at all, not the trajectory of our ministry, nothing is apart from him. Nothing comes except he gives it. Essentially, he's saying, if, if this is God's will, so be it. It's a statement about sovereignty. God's absolute control of all things, this included. And it's a statement about submission to that sovereignty. And if he just left it there, that would have been good enough. But he goes on to explain a little bit more about what he knows about this sovereignty. You see, we don't always, we don't always understand why God does certain things, why the sovereignty of God works out in some ways or another, but John did because he'd been told about it already in the Scriptures. He understood some of his role in relation to Jesus. So he continues speaking emphatically here, I already clearly told you I am not the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. Religious Jews of all sorts for centuries had been awaiting a coming deliverer, an anointed one who would come and deliver his people from their troubles. And that anticipation had been heightening in recent years, and when John shows up on the scene, some people thought, maybe this was the guy. Are you the one? Are you the Christ? And he said, no, clearly. But the Messiah is coming right behind me. I'm the one that's been sent to pave the way for him, to prepare for his coming, and now he has come. And he makes that point even more explicit in his wedding image, verses 29 and 30. It's the perfect analogy. We get exactly what he's talking about. Even though weddings were a little different back then, they were a little more groom-centered than our weddings are today that are more bride-centered, we still get what he's talking about. Picture any wedding that you've been to. It's really easy to figure out who the bride is. She's the one wearing white. Clear. But sometimes the groom, if, if they're not together, the groom can be a little hard to, to discern because there are usually five or six guys who are wearing black tuxedos. So you have to watch. You ask, who does she dance with? Not the old guy, that's her dad. Of the young guys, who does she dance with? Who does she kiss? When all the guests clink their silverware against the glasses. That guy for sure is the groom. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, basically the, the equivalent of our best man. The friend of the bridegroom has a role also, but it's not to marry the bride. In that culture, his job was to be available to help the bride prepare and then to escort her over to the groom's house and then to oversee the quite lengthy, sometimes up to a week-long, wedding feast. He had a definite role, but it wasn't to get married to the bride. His whole job and his whole delight was in seeing the groom's wedding, it was the groom's wedding, go off without a hitch. His dearest friend joined in marriage to his beloved bride. That's what he wants on that day. I don't want the bride to marry me. I want her to marry him. The bridegroom, look at him. He's awesome. He's my best friend. I want them to get together. It's a perfect analogy. We get what he's saying. But he's saying a lot more than just what's caught up in that comparison of bridegroom to best man. He's saying more than that because of what his comments are built upon the Old Testament idea of the bridegroom or the husband of the people of God. We'll talk about that in a little bit. He's the groom. I'm not. I must become less and he must be exalted. This is his moment. He is to take center stage. And that's entirely appropriate, verse 31, because of who he is. He's the one come from above, from heaven. 
That's how these two paragraphs connect. John the Baptist has been giving this analogy. He's been speaking up in the first paragraph. And the second paragraph is the other John, John the Apostle, now stepping in to make some, some, some statements of summary. If you read through the second paragraph, as, as we have, you, you might have heard some things that were familiar because he's pulling in, most of what he says, he's pulling in from previous um, sections of, of his book already. A lot of it from the p- first part of chapter 3, some from chapter 1. He's kind of summing some things up here. Jesus come down from above, speaking for God, speaking the word of God, but his testimony being rejected. Well, Jesus said that to Nicodemus already. Most people rejecting, but some receiving. That's in verses 32 and 33. And that sounds like the end of last week's passage. And also it sounds like some things from the prologue in chapter 1. And Jesus uttering the words of God because, for, middle of verse 34, for God has given him the Spirit without measure. That's what that section means. God gives to Jesus the Spirit without measure. So Jesus then speaks exactly the word of God in great power, as is entirely appropriate in the situation because he's constantly full of the Spirit, directed and led and empowered by him. Well, When John identified him back in chapter 1, he said, the one on whom the Spirit comes and remains. He's connecting a number of things already said, summing them up here. It's, it's his statement trying to, to push upon us a point. This one that we're talking about here is supreme. He is the exalted one. He is the one sent from God. It says that in this passage. We talked about the sent one theme also. Sent down from God to speak the words of God in the power of God's Spirit. The Supreme One. Therefore, we must believe in Him. Verse 36. We've seen that already too. He's pressing this upon us. The supremacy of Christ leading to a response in you and me. How can we sum all this up? What's the central theme then? I put it in a sentence here. Central theme of this passage today. Joyfully exalt and obediently trust this supreme bridegroom. There are three parts of that statement. They're going to be the three main points that I'm going to talk about here in a moment. Joyfully exalt and obediently trust this supreme bridegroom. That's the foundation This bridegroom, this Christ is supreme and therefore two responses, exalt him and trust him. We'll start with the foundation, the part about Jesus. It's a major theme of this book, of the whole Bible. Christ, the bridegroom, is supreme over all, over everything. Supreme in his nature, in his office, in his glory, in his rights, in his privileges, in any way imaginable. This Christ is exalted and supreme. And the Bible presses that upon us again and again and again. One writer I know says, there is no other message here other than Christ. It is the message of the Bible. He is supreme over all things. And we see it in this, par- in this passage in two different ways. We see it in the analogy of the bridegroom and in the explicit statements of John in the second paragraph. We'll start with the bridegroom thing first. We're going to look briefly at one Old Testament passage to get a feel for what John and his disciples had in their minds when they discussed this idea of the bridegroom. And when we do that, you'll probably realize there are a number of different things we could talk about even surfaced in the passage that we're going to look at, we could talk about what kind of blessings does the bridegroom bring. We're not going to focus on that. What's the character or the nature of the bridegroom? We're not going to talk about all of the different aspects of his nature because John is primarily, John the Baptist is primarily concerned with one thing, identity. Who is the bridegroom? Because in the Old Testament, he's read the Old Testament, he realizes that the bridegroom is God Almighty himself. So, if John can walk around Judea looking around and then put his finger on somebody and say, this is the bridegroom, what he's saying is, this is God Almighty himself. That's what John's trying to do here. He's concerned primarily with identity. That's what we're going to focus on. Let's look at one passage. I think it's the most familiar passage. This idea of, in one way or another, God being the husband of his people is in many different places in the Old Testament. The one that's perhaps most familiar is the book of Hosea. We look at one passage there. Hosea is an interesting book, one of the minor prophets. 
And in the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea is told by God to go and marry a prostitute. Everybody knows she's a prostitute. And God tells this prophet to marry her anyway because he's trying to create a very graphic picture of what his relationship with his people Israel is like. God's saying, I am the husband bound to you by marriage covenant, but you constantly give yourselves to any and everything. It's a tragic thing. It's a painful thing. It brings a lot of consequences to Israel. There's a lot of heat in the book of Hosea. A lot of hard stuff there. God's trying to sort this out with his people. But there are some bright moments too. There are some places in Hosea where, where the, the panoramic lens comes out and you see things open up and the future is pointed towards. And there is a time coming, Hosea makes clear, when God's going to fix this marriage and restore it. He's going to make things right with his people. One of those places is chapter 2, verses 16 to 20. And he says, in that day, in that day, in the future that's coming, down the road there, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. It's a play on words there. Baal is the name of a foreign god, and it's also a word that sounds like husband. So he says, you're going to call me husband, not after the name of this foreign god, for I will remove the name of the Baals from her mouth. And they shall be remembered by name no more. I'm going to clean that. And I will make for them a covenant on that day in the future with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will remove, I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. What a blessing. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Language of marriage, husband, betrothal. That's an engagement leading to marriage. Language of marriage and, and the language of covenant that comes about on that day. A covenant to bring peace and prosperity to the people. And righteousness and justice and mercy and faithfulness. Everything that you could want. The blessed life brought to the people by God. The magnitude of the blessings that comes when God comes to wed His people. That day is coming, says Hosea. You shall know the Lord. It's Hosea's statement of the new covenant. There's a lot one could explore, but remember, the thing we're working on is the identity of this husband. And Hosea is really clear. It is the Lord himself. It's all capital letters there. It's the Lord's personal name. God himself is the husband who comes to betroth his people. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. John the Baptist could not have helped but know this. Everybody knew this. It's the, the whole book is built on this idea. One of the prophets of Israel. One is coming to betroth his people, to engage them to be married. And who is it? That one, says the Baptist. That one is the bridegroom. Not me. He is the, the Lord himself. Come now in flesh. He is beginning to marry his people. I'm watching a wedding going on here. The crowds are going to him. Amen. This is glorious. God has come and is betrothing his people to him in faithfulness, in steadfast love and mercy. Sit back and watch. It's a glorious thing. It has begun now. It's being carried on now. It will be finished at some point in the future. John the Baptist is putting his finger on Jesus again and saying, this one is the supreme bridegroom. In case you missed that in his analogy, John the, the apostle wants to be really clear that we don't miss this, so then he goes on to, to summarize it in the next paragraph. The word 
has indeed become flesh. He's walking around amongst us. He's baptizing people, getting hungry and tired, maybe wet as well. He looks like just one of the guys, but he is not one of the guys. He's not from Nazareth. He's not from Bethlehem. He's from above. All of us are from here, not him. He is from above and therefore is above all. Above everything. Verse 31. He's not a human tied to the human realm. Not speaking as a human. He was following Jesus' teaching in Nicodemus. He has privileged status. Think of what Jesus knows, what he's seen. He has spent eternity past the Word in the beginning with God because the Word was God. For eternity past, without ever starting, he has always been in the perfect fellowship of the Trinity. The things that he knows, the things that he's seen, the things that God has sent him to tell us about. Yet people reject his testimony. He's speaking the words of God in the power of the Spirit of God. And people call God a liar and reject Jesus. Absolutely everything has been given into this one's hands. Verse 35. When God sent him here, God delivered to him total authority. Everything that moves and breathes is under his command. He is above all because of his origin in heaven, and he is above all because of the status that has been given to him. He reigns. We don't see that clearly right now, but we will one day. He is the supreme bridegroom, supreme over all. And that requires a response from us. A couple different responses, actually, in this text. It's the, two, the next two points. The reality of Christ's supremacy means that we should rejoice in making much of Christ. Rejoice in making much of Christ and not yourself. should be a little sting there in that last phrase. Because John's disciples certainly felt a little sting themselves when John answered them. They asked him, Rabbi, what about us? This Jesus is growing in popularity and people seem more willing and more eager to follow him. We're on the decline. What about us? It's not about us, friends. It's the essence of John's response. Yes, he's moving to center stage, but that's appropriate. The play is all about him. He is the Christ. The one that I've been pointing to. The one that I was sent ahead of to prepare the way for. He must take center stage. He must. And by comparison, I and all of you must step back and decline. And let him shine. Now in a narrative like this, we need to be careful to look closely to make sure that we don't just blindly adopt something that someone else did or said and and make it our own because there are a lot of things that a lot of people do in the Bible that we shouldn't do. So we need to look at it and try to figure out where do I fit here? Am I supposed to identify with John the Baptist or not? Yes, we are. A couple ways that we know that are the absolute statements that John makes. If you look at verses 27 or 28, even though we'll never exactly follow in John's particular role of being the forerunner of Christ, We still are meant to identify with John here. All of us sit under the sovereign hand of God. We are here in times and in places and in roles that he has given us. And he has given to none of us the role of being the Christ. Not to John, not to me, not to you, none of us. By comparison then, there is one Christ and the rest of us. We all need to be seeing ourselves identified with John here diminished in comparison to the exalted Christ. Nothing in relation to him. To put that into a wedding analogy like John uses, the minute you find yourself tooting your own horn over in the orchestra pit or standing up at someone else's wedding and belting out a a long polished solo or in any other way trying to, to steal onto yourself the attention and the acclaim of other people there, 
You've messed everything up. You've tried to steal the honor away from where it actually belongs. And in so doing, you've destroyed other people's joy. They're now frustrated with you, drawn away from the delightful thing going on and looking at you. And interestingly, you've also diminished your own joy because you are missing the pleasurable event that's going on right in the same room with you. Stolen honor. Messed up other people's joy. Messed up your own. Brothers and sisters, we must realize our place in this world in relation to Christ, and we must decrease so as to magnify Him all the more. It's not that Christ is little and insignificant, so we have to stop competing with Him and showing Him up. It's not that. Christ is majestic, but by nature He is often distant from the human heart and can be blocked out of view. These mountains over here, They're far larger than I am. But if you're standing in the parking lot looking at them and I come to stand right in front of you, I can block your view of them. Interestingly, I can block my own view if I hold my hand up right in front of my face and look at myself and not see things that are far larger than I am. We tend to do that all the time with Jesus putting ourselves in the way and hindering people's looking at him and hindering people being drawn to him and instead tending to draw them to ourselves. Now, I know that you intellectually agree with me on this. I know that you do. You're right, Steve. We must realize our place in this world and embrace a decreased, humbled stance so as to elevate Christ and to point people towards him not suction them off onto us. Yes, Steve, we must do that. You agree with that. But it's not a head problem, it's a heart problem. We all know that up here, but we constantly struggle with it here because our hearts are tenaciously convinced that we should be made much of. That's who we are by nature. Our hearts, fallen as they are, love ourselves by nature. Love the spotlight, love the acclaim and the praise. Even if you're a shy person, you still want the approval and the acclaim and the kudos from other people. We we strongly resist being put in the back seat and reminded of how insignificant we are, how small we are. I know a great Christian leader used to call himself a termite in God's kingdom, and most people cringe at that because we don't want to be termites. That's generous compared to the Supreme Christ. That, our hearts resist that. We do not like that. I'm tempted in this all the time. I, I want to seize the front. I'm tempted in, in some unique ways because I have kind of a public life and everything that goes well in the church, people praise me for it even if it's not, up, not done by me. So far people haven't begun to criticize me too much yet. <laughs> But that will come to, and it'll, again, it'll be pointed at me. And I kind of like the center sometimes, and I'm tempted in that. And I'm drawn towards it. May God give me grace as your minister to get out of the way and point you to Christ. That must happen. You're tempted too, in some different ways, because you don't have my unique role given by God. You've been given another role, but you're still tempted because you're still a human being. Your heart still wants to be in front and to be in the center too. May God give us grace. Because you can no sooner tell the human heart to exalt Christ and to diminish itself. In and of itself, you can no sooner tell the human heart to do that than you can tell a dead man to raise himself. Or someone who doesn't exist to birth himself. You can't do that. Our hearts are fallen We are utterly dependent on the grace of God to work in us and to change us, to begin to change us, to treasure this vast supreme Christ as he should be treasured, to begin that and then day by day by day to continue to grow it. You're utterly dependent on the grace of God to do that. But God pours out grace through means. Here's our job in this. We must be diminished. We must decrease. How do we do that? By using the means 
Scripture, prayer, fellowship, the means that God gives grace, we use them towards one end in particular. We pray, pray, pray that God would give us eyes to see our sinfulness. Again, we all know that we're sinners, but we very rarely reckon that we're actually sinners. And we very rarely properly understand the magnitude of our sin that is, in fact, infinite upon infinite. May God give grace through the Scriptures and through prayer and through fellowship to open our eyes and show us our sin, that we would have the perspective of Paul, who at different points in his life said, Oh, wretched man that I am, later called himself the chief amongst sinners. The perspective of the hymn writer that said, that saved a wretch like me. We don't like using that language. We would prefer to not think about our sin and instead think of ourselves as saved ones, saints, saved by grace, etc. Well, that's true too. But he saved a wretch like me. And if he would leave, that's who I still am. Thankfully, he has left. He's not going to leave. We need to get in touch, though, with who we really are inside here. If you understand this, this kind of a humbled, decreased perspective, seeing your sin and seeing it, I mean, just intellectually acknowledging it, God can open your eyes to show you your sin. And it will cut the root of hollow, self-exalting, self-esteeming pride. Look at me! With all of this sin, what a wretch I am. If you can say that, you are in a good place. You'll be a diminished person, realizing that you have unclean lips and you live among an unclean people. You will be diminished. Hunt your sin. Look for it. Keep it before you. May God give us that kind of clarifying grace because right behind it follows saving and sanctifying grace. And this is how the diminishing of self exalts Christ because he he would be one who would save a wretch like me. What a glorious God he is. Paul in Romans 7, different views on that passage. I think he's probably talking about a, a person who has not yet been saved, but there are different views. But Paul in Romans 7 lines up right behind the, Oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ can. I have a huge problem. Who's the deliverer? Jesus is. What a glorious Christ he is. I see the hugeness of my problem, and I see the immensity of his deliverance. He who has been forgiven much, loves much, said Jesus. I have been delivered saved by this Christ. I'm being sanctified by this Christ. What a glorious Christ He is. And then everything that I do, verse 21 there, everything that I do now that I walk in the light, everybody will look at and say, the only thing in Him that does that is God. Everything done has been done through God. It's clearly seen because this person is not that. That's the work of God. That's the grace of God in his or her life. It shows off Christ to be a great deliverer, a savior from sin and a sanctifier from sin, and so exalts him and points other people to him. I can't become anything apart from him. You could become this too by him. Look at him. Me, I'm a wretch. See how that works? It begins with hunting your sin and then follows on by seeing Christ as a great savior and a great sanctifier. Rejoice in that. That'll be your fullest joy. To see Him like that in your life. Rejoice in exalting Him. He's a great Savior. The second response, the third point this morning, is found primarily in verse 36. It's where John concludes, so we will as well. It's another point of personal response. Wed, that is Mary, wed this glorious groom by means of obedient trust. Wed this glorious groom by means of obedient 
trust. Christ the bridegroom is supreme. We saw that. What flows out of that as an appropriate conclusion to this chapter and to this whole line of thinking is verse 36. We've already seen, but which John presses upon us for impact and to clarify things. Given the fact that Jesus is the one who has come from God, who teaches the word of God and the power of God, there are only two options, only two places that people can find themselves. A, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Or B, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Only those two options. He offers to us life. Not just physical life here for a couple of decades. Eternal life. A great a great given life that is not, the eternal part is not just about length of days, because if you think about this, hell is eternal as well, and people will live there forever too. Eternal life is not just a really, really long life. It's John's way of expressing experience the kingdom reign of God. You can have eternal life right now. The tense of the word have, the verb there, it's present tense. It's right now, on and on, day after day after day. Eternal life, experiencing the kingdom reign of God can begin right now. You don't have to wait to die to get that. You can experience it now and then on in the future when Christ one day comes, returns, and sets up his kingdom. Then you'll experience something vast and glorious as the earth is made new and the curse is removed and evil is no more. It begins now in here and will one day be seen in all of its fullness. You can have that. The blessed life, the life of joy and rest in here that we all crave and we all desperately need, it is offered to those who believe. Believe. I know that there are some of you who sit here and you do not believe. Some of you know that. I know, I know you know that. Some of you don't know that. Believe. Wed this glorious groom. Come to betroth his people in righteousness and in justice and in mercy and in steadfast love. To bring peace to the heart and to the land one day. Wed this glorious groom by obedient trust. Do it now. Did you catch what I said about obedient trust? Don't anybody run right by that too quickly. There's something critical for us to see here. Some Christians, in an effort to trumpet the call to salvation by faith alone, and by the way, amen to that doctrine, salvation is by faith alone, properly understood, not by faith plus some combination of works, nothing that merits it. You just trust what Christ has done. Salvation by faith alone is true. It is critical, central to Christianity, central to the teaching of the Bible. However, in an effort to explain that, some Christians have missed a little bit and have attempted to utterly divide faith from obedience. To make them two distinct things. And John does not allow that. Do you see that here? John tells us, under the inspiration of God, so whatever he says is true here. John tells us how he sees belief. He's written a parallel sentence. A sentence that has two parts that are parallel. Line them up. Whoever believes in the Son has life. Whoever does not believe, who does not, doesn't say believe, it says whoever does not Obey the Son, shall not see life. So whoever parallels whoever. See life parallels not see life. And in the middle, you don't have two statements of belief. You have believe and obey. He's saying the same thing in two different ways here. It's making this really clear to us. You cannot separate these two things of belief and obedience. You cannot say with your mouth or with your life, I believe in the Son, I just don't obey Him. 
cannot say that. Those things go together. To disobey Him is to not believe Him. Disobedience is unbelief. Later in the book, Jesus himself is going to attack this perspective that tries to divide the two between heart allegiance and and obedience. He's going to try to attack that perspective and say, if you love me, obey my commands. They're joined. They fit together. Now, Now, perfect obedience? No. But Jesus and John are incredibly concerned with genuine faith. We've seen that already. We're going to see it again and again. Genuine faith is a faith that comes to and follows Jesus and remains with Him. We've seen that. Here we find out that genuine faith obeys. Not perfectly. We're still sinners. But again, 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 the Bible drives this home to us. To be those who have genuinely believed and have actually then entered into eternal life, the Bible expects are then living lives that are changed and are changing to become more and more and more obedient to Christ. Matthew 12, Jesus says, make a tree good, and what happens? Good fruit follows. You don't make a tree good by the good fruit. The fruit follows on after the tree has been made good. By faith alone is what he's implying. You make a tree good by faith, and fruit happens. You can't divide the two. Obedience and faith fit together. So, examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. Paul commands it in Corinthians. So do it. Examine yourself. But instead of asking, do I believe? Why not rather ask, do I obey? Do I obey the Son? Right now, because as we've talked about repeatedly, this, this belief is in the present tense. It's believe now and tomorrow and the next day, not I did believe sometime in the past. It's now and going on. So is the obey. Not I have obeyed before. I obey today. And I'm going to obey tomorrow by the grace of God and I'm going to continue to obey. I look right here. Am I obeying right now? Not have I obeyed prior. Genuine faith that exists today is matched with genuine obedience that exists today. So ask yourself, do I, be- do I believe and do I obey? Am I obedient to Christ right now as a habit of life? And am I becoming more and more obedient to Christ as a growing habit of life? And take care to examine more than just outward evidences. There are a lot of people around A lot of people back in the day of the Bible who on the outside seem to be obeying. But inside their hearts are far from Him. They have not internally believed at the level of affection and emotion, the level of attitude, and that's where unbelief begins. Maybe they've been able to suppress it on the outside and seemingly obey in public ways like the Pharisees. They were were great at this. But Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. On the outside, all white and clean and good-looking, and on the inside, filled with nothing but dead men's bones. Don't stop on the surface when you ask yourself, do I obey? Ask about the heart, about your attitudes in here. Do I love Christ as He says I should love Him? If He's supreme, I should love Him above everything. Do I love Him above everything? How do I treat other people in my attitudes? Am I critical of them? Do I love money? What are my lusts after? What's going on in here? Ask yourself in here, do you obey Christ? And are you becoming more and more obedient to Christ? Genuine faith is obedient. That's what John is saying. Now we could debate, how much disobedience is permissible for a Christian? I hope that sounds like a silly question. How much disobedience is permissible for a Christian? How far down the road of disobedience can I walk as a Christian before I shouldn't anymore? Before it begins to get dangerous and I should wonder if I actually do believe, if I actually am saved. How far down that path can I go? Where is the cliff? That's the whole wrong set of questions. 
the genuine believer asks, how quickly can I repent? How fast can I get off of this path? I see here I am, and I don't want to know, can I go another step? I want to say, here I am, how fast can I get over to this path? God, help me. Give me grace to change me. You've just given me grace to show me some of my sins, some of my disobedience. Change me. Move me. Work in my heart, please. So the genuine believer responds. There are theological things we could talk about about this road, but the point is, get off that road. The genuine believer cries out for grace and repents and trusts Christ. Obediently trusts Christ and moves over the path of righteousness. Wed yourself to this glorious groom or renew your vows if you have to. Obedient faith joins you to Christ. Grasp Him like that. He is supreme over all. He reigns over all. Rejoice in exalting Him by diminishing yourself. Wed yourself to Him by obedient trust. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.